Once a year, for those of you who are guests this morning. Uh, the scripture reading for today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21, page 818 in the Pew Bibles. The Ministry of the Reconciliation. Since then, we know what is, what is to fear the Lord. We try to pursue men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen, rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So for now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of the reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, and though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be seen for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness to God. Once a year, for those of you who are guests this morning, <clears throat> once a year, I take opportunity to share with the church the very best jokes that I have heard throughout the previous year. I, I'm not a funny guy. Like, I, I try and, and come up with things that are funny. Ryan, you're probably a funny guy. I'm not. Okay? I'm not a very funny guy. And so every, every, once a year, I try and be funny. And so this year, I've worked really hard. And I think I have some really funny stuff here. The Pollocks walked in this morning. Hope didn't say hi. She didn't say happy new year. She said, are you telling jokes today? I said, yes. She said, we should have stayed home. <laughs> See, I think I'm not a funny guy, but I'm starting to change my mind. Tom, Dick, and Harry went to a party. By the way, I wrote all of these. Tom, Dick, and Harry went to a party. After the party, they returned to the hotel. The hotel was 600 stories high. The, store, the, the hotel was 600 stories high. Unfortunately for them, the elevator was not working. They made a plan. For the first 200 stories, Tom would crack jokes. So he did. The second 200 stories, Dick wanted to tell a happy story. And lastly, Harry is going to tell a sad story in the 200 that are his. They then started up the steps. After two hours, it was Harry's turn. He turned to the other two and he said, okay, guys, here's my sad story. I forgot the keys downstairs. 
Thank you. Thank you. I thought that was really good. Greg, did you like that one? Yeah, I thought it was excellent. Okay. It was Critics Day in Heaven. Critics Day. When all celebrated biblical figures reflect on their life experiences on earth and decide what would have been the best approach to perform their respective feats. On the floor today was Moses' parting of the Red Sea in order to escape the pursuing Egyptians. So they all have to come up with ideas about how they could best part the Red Sea. First up was Noah, who said he would have used a divine, he would have used divine foresight to construct an ark in advance so that he could take the Israelites across on his boat. Peter objected to this, claiming Noah's method was too technical, stating that he would have simply helped the Israelites walk on the water across the sea. Elijah objected, calling Peter's method unreliable. He then proposed calling fire down from heaven to consume the Red Sea. Solomon pointed out that this did not solve the problem of the Egyptians. He was the wise one. Elijah looked at them incredulously before saying what appeared to him as obvious. He would call fire down on the Egyptians too. Daniel remarked that Elijah's method wasn't cost effective. He and a now furious Elijah then plunged into a heated argument. So Daniel and Elijah are fighting with each other. Finally, Balaam stood up and proposed placing his donkey in front of all the advancing Egyptians. You got that. They all stared in awe. I thought it was hilarious. Okay. (laughs) Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were going camping. This is a new joke. (laughs) Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were going camping. They pitched their tent under the stars and went to sleep. Sometime in the middle of the night, Holmes woke up and said to Watson, Watson, look up at the stars and tell me what you see. Watson replied, I see millions and millions of stars. Holmes said, and what do you deduce from that? Watson replied, well, if there are millions of stars, and even if a few of those have planets, it's quite likely that there are some planets like Earth out there, and if there are a few planets like Earth out there, there might also be life. And Holmes said, Watson, it means that somebody stole our tent. (laughs) How many of you have heard that one before? Okay. That's why so many people laughed. Okay. Last one, where are the kids? I want to make sure the kids are having a good time. Will, are you having fun? Excellent. Once there were four businessmen, they were sitting on a bench in a hospital waiting room because their wives were having babies. Peter, this fits you. A a nurse comes over and says to the first businessman, congratulations, your wife had a baby. The man says, what a coincidence. I'm the president of a company that's named And One because she had one baby. The nurse goes away. The nurse then comes back and says to the second businessman, congratulations, your wife had twins. The man says, what a coincidence. I'm the owner of the Minnesota Twins. The nurse goes away. The nurse comes back and says to the third businessman, congratulations, your wife had triplets. The man says, what a coincidence. I work for Triple Crown. The nurse goes away. The nurse comes back and sees the fourth businessman alone on the bench crying. She asks, why are you crying? The man replies, because I work for 7-Up. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> now, I would ask how many of you had heard that one before, but it was such a hearty laugh. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, if you're thinking to yourselves, does the preacher do, if you're, if you're new here, if you're a guest and you're thinking, does the preacher do this every week? No, I don't. 
And I know you'd like me to. <laughs> but no, I don't. Because I do, I do take the word of God seriously. And I think the things we do on Sunday morning should be taken very seriously. But it's kind of fun, especially on New Year's Day, to just have some fun to eat with each other. So there's that. Next year, who knows what I'll come up with. We'll see. But I really like it that some people walk in the building and already are ready for this when they walk in. That's a good thing. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 11 says this. <clears throat> Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. Now that's an interesting point. Because if I ask you, most of you today, whether or not you fear the Lord, I think there's a high percentage of you that would say no. I think a high percentage of you would say, no, I don't fear the Lord. And that's because you have a relationship with God, like I do, in which God, because he is loving and because he gave us Jesus, because he blessed us with his presence, we tend to not be fearful of God. And, and when someone says to me something about God, my first reaction is not fear. My first reaction when I think about God is how much he loves me through Jesus. And I think that's the experience of most Christians. I just find it fascinating that as Paul is talking about why it is that he tries to persuade men about salvation in Jesus, that he starts out by saying, since we know what it is to fear the Lord. And it makes me think that the main motivation, or at least one of the main motivations for Paul to share the gospel with other people is because he actually fears the Lord. Now, what is it exactly that Paul would fear with relationship to the Lord? I, I don't think that Paul is afraid concerning his own salvation. I don't think that Paul, as he writes this, is thinking to himself, maybe I'm lost. Maybe I won't make it. Maybe I'm, you know, my life has been sinful and God won't forgive me. I don't think that would be Paul's attitude. So what exactly is it, in terms of fearing the Lord, that would cause Paul to say, because we fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. And I think you would agree with me that the reason for that is not because Paul himself fears God's punishment in his own life, but because he is indeed fearful for others. He is fearful because he knows what may well happen to those, what is going to happen to those who don't know Christ. And so when I think about the church today and where we are in terms of this whole desire to help humankind come to Jesus and understand what Jesus is about, for people to come to personal relationship with Christ... One of the things that we're going to have to get in our minds, and I sure hope it happens in 2012, is just 
how lost the world is without Jesus. Do you agree with me? Do do you agree with me that the world is really lost without Jesus? I think this is an important point. And one that we that we have to take really seriously. Sometimes I wonder if we just we doubt a little bit or it's not on the forefront of our thinking just how lost the world is without Jesus. Because they are. You know, we live in a society where it's easy to look around and, and, and make it seem like everybody is doing so well, or at least an awful lot of people are doing well. And most of us even live a certain lifestyle that makes it so that we, we run in circles where it looks like in our circles, everybody is doing fairly okay. Like most of the people in this room today are gainfully employed. And I realize someone may start out this year with no job. That's a possibility. But most of us are gainfully employed. There isn't anybody here who during the last week and a half over the holidays was starving. There is no one here, most likely, who has experienced absolute life-changing grief in the last few days. Now, it's possible And you may come up to me afterwards and say, boy, actually, this did happen in my life. But for most of us, that's not the case. And we don't think about it much because we run in these circles. But most of the time, we don't think about the fact that there are people around us everywhere who actually are dying in their sins And who are lost. And so it looks like all these tragedies that aren't really happening in our circle. And because that isn't really on the front of our minds. It looks like everything is just going so well for most people. When the reality is. Dead men walking. There are people that you work with every day who don't know Jesus. And if you were to ask God what their status is before him. If God cries tears, then he would be weeping. If you ask Jesus about the people that are around you on your street. How's that person in that house doing? And you know the people perhaps on your street, so you know the people I'm talking about. How is that person doing in that house, Jesus? And how is this person doing in this house, Jesus? And how is this lady down here a couple of houses down from me? How is she doing, Jesus? And we might all think on the surface, it looks like they're doing okay. So-and-so just passed their exam. And they're excited about their future. So-and-so just got a good report back from the doctor. That all looks good. The lady two doors down, she just got a new job, and she's excited about that. And it looks like it's so good on the surface. But if you ask Jesus, how are these people really doing? I think Jesus would say, oh, how I would long for them to come to me so that all that they could have in life could be theirs. 
And not just in this life, of course, but eternal life could be there so that they could come to know me so they could have relationship with me. I came to the world and died for that one who got the good report back. I, I died for the one who got the new job. And that's wonderful, but they don't know me. I want so badly to be in relationship with them and they don't know me. And I'm longing to have them come to understand who I am and what it is that I've done for them so that we could be one with one another. But we can't be. And so all this stuff that looks on the surface so good and we're all so happy that we're all doing so well. Jesus says they they don't know me. And it, and it breaks his heart. At the end of the day, Jesus couldn't care less whether or not you do well in school. Relatively speaking, Jesus doesn't care how well you do financially, how well you do in your work, whether or not you consider yourself a success whether or not you have esteem in the eyes of other people. There is a sense, I suppose, in which Jesus cares about those things because he does love us and he wants the best for us. But ultimately, what Jesus Christ wants is for us to come to know him. And he wants that not just for those who are sitting in front of me today. He wants that for all the people in the world. And, and you know, when the angels rejoice... The angels don't rejoice so much about our successes. I get a promotion at work. Does that cause the angels to rejoice? No. They they might smile a bit. Maybe they're relatively happy for you. But the thing that will make the angels sing. Thousands of angels singing is when a lost person who doesn't know Jesus comes to him. And there's a sense in which the only thing that really matters in this life, even for all of us, is what we do in propagating the news about Jesus with those around us. And Jesus himself, of course, would say that that's the most important thing and the rest of it doesn't really matter. Now, one of the reasons why Jesus is so concerned about that is because Jesus, like Paul, is concerned about what will happen with those who don't know Christ. And maybe the big question for the morning is, do we? Do we really care about those around us who don't know Jesus And what's going to happen to them? It's easy to put this into perspective, you know. This morning, my son is on a plane with his wife and our grandchild. And if somebody came to me before they got on the plane this morning, and they said, and and let's imagine that I trust them, They came to me and they said, 
Your son and daughter-in-law and grandchild need to not be on this plane today. And the reason why is because the plane is not going to make it. It's going down. This is going to be a disaster. Keep them off the plane. And, and as I said, let's imagine that I trusted them, this person, that I, I really believed that they knew what they were talking about. What do you think I would do when I got up this morning and my son starts to prepare to get on the plane? Do you think I'd let him get on that plane? Like I'd lose the keys to the car. The, the phone line would be ripped out so he couldn't call anybody. I'd bash his cell phone to pieces. He's stronger than I am. I probably couldn't tie him down. But I would do everything in my power. I would beg him. I would plead him. I would, you know, I would get up earlier than he did. I would make sure that somehow, some way, my son didn't get on that plane. If I knew that there was going to be that kind of problem. Paul says that he is fearful of God. And I think what he means, I know what he means is, I'm afraid what happens to people who don't know Jesus and so it compelled him to talk to other people about Jesus. He gave his life to it. He ultimately died because of it. And when he reads in places like 2 Corinthians, when we read Paul's description of the things that he experienced. All the beatings. The scourging. The shipwrecks. The, the loneliness that he experienced. The rejection of his own people. All the things that Paul experienced. Why would Paul go through that? There's only one reason. And he gives it to us. He says it's because I fear the Lord. I fear what's going to happen to those people. In light of their rejection of Jesus. Their lack of relationship with him. And because he loves people. Like I would love my son. And because he sees that the end of one's life without Christ is not what Paul would want for anyone. It drives him, it compels him to talk to others about Jesus. And so again, the question for the morning is, do we understand does it do something to us when we think about what is happening with those around us whom we love, whom we know, those with whom we have relationships, and they don't know Christ? Does it break your heart? Does it, does it cause a shiver to go up your spine when you think about those whom you love not knowing Jesus? It needs to. And we need to be compelled, not just by the love of Christ, 
but also by an understanding of what happens to those who are outside of Jesus, who don't have a relationship with him, how badly they need Christ. We need to fear the Lord. And because of that, make moves to help people understand who Jesus is. Now, the text goes on to say that one of the reasons we do this is because this is exactly what God has created us for. He has made us this. This sign up here says, reconciled to be reconciled. It actually should have said, it's, it's proper on the order of assembly. It's not right up here. It should say, reconciled to be reconcilers. Reconciled to be reconcilers. God has reconciled us with himself through Jesus. And then he says, Paul says, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation so that the world can be reconciled to Christ through our ministries. That's the responsibility that you and I have. And do you know, there is no other plan. There is no other means by which God intends for the world to come to Jesus other than by you talking to those whom you know about him. That's the only plan. And we've done this before. We won't do it this morning. I could have you all raise your hands if you were converted by someone who was a friend or a loved one. And 99% of you would all raise your hands. The TV programs are wonderful. But they don't help people come to Jesus the way that we help people come to Jesus when we come to know them, when we're in relationship with them. And so if you have, listen to the absurdity of this question. If you have people that you know whom you love and they don't know Jesus. And again, I could have you raise your hands. Every one of you would raise your hands. There are people that we know that don't know Jesus. God's plan, most likely, think about this, God's plan, most likely, for the people that you know and love who don't know Jesus, God's plan for reconciling them to him is you. I think that's most likely. He may have some other grand plan of which I'm not aware but most likely, those whom you know and love who don't know Christ, his plan for them coming to know him is you. Now, you might think, boy, is he ever laying the guilt trip on us this morning? But of course, that's not the case. I'm not interested in making anybody feel guilty. Guilt doesn't motivate anybody to do anything. Paul didn't say, I feel guilty, therefore I persuade men. What Paul says is, I fear the Lord. Because I fear the Lord, I'm attempting to persuade men about who Jesus is. And so if we understand who God is, who Jesus is, what he's done, what he can do through us, how he works in our lives and puts me in a relationship with him. And if we understand that the only real way that the people that we know and love that don't know Jesus are going to come to know him is through us. That's not guilt, folks. That's not guilt. 
I would like to think that's inspiration. I'd like to think that that's motivation. That that's someone saying, oh my goodness, he's right. This is my responsibility. These people, if they're going to know Jesus, are going to have to know him through me. I need to start doing something to communicate Jesus to those whom I know and love. I am praying that this year, in 2012, like never before, we know what it is to fear the Lord. And again, not that I'm shivering in my boots because of Jesus. I think that Jesus loves me more than I could ever love my son. But I am afraid for those who don't know Christ that I know and love. I don't want them to be lost. I don't want them to not know Christ. I want them to know him. I want them to experience the fullness of life in Jesus that I experience. And I pray that I, that I myself, just like you, that somehow this year I have a hand in helping those that I know and love who don't know Jesus. Oh, I pray that I have a hand in leading them to him. I want them to know him. And I just think that I just think that God has given me that responsibility of helping teach them about him. You, I think, also have that responsibility. Together, we share this responsibility. And we can do wonderful things in leading people to Jesus this year. If we understand what it is to fear the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Holy Father, there isn't, there isn't anybody in the room today who doesn't know someone who needs you. We all know someone who needs you, God. I'd pray that you would embolden us, motivate us, drive us through the presence of your spirit to communicate you to these people. Help us to show you to these people. Help us to love them like you would love them. Help us to know what to say. To say the things that will help draw them closer to you. Help us show them your significance for our world. Help, them show, uh, help us show them your love. Help us, Father, show them the freedom that you offer from sin. Help us to show them the glories of what it means to be in relationship with you and experience everlasting life that starts right here. Help us, Father, to shape our priorities so that we can see the need to fear you and what, what your judgment means for those who don't know you. And help us, Father, to do all we can to draw them to you. God, I'm convinced that there's no other plan. I'm convinced, God, that you want us to be the ones 
And Father, I pray that you help us to answer that call. Help us, Father, to be willing to make sacrifices. Help us, Father, to have vision for what can be done to help bring people to you. Help us, Lord, to make great decisions that will enhance our efforts. But, but most of all, God, just work on our hearts. Help us to see the need for us to be reconcilers of people to you. You've given us that ministry. Help us to fulfill it. We pray these things in the powerful, wonderful, blessed name of Jesus. Amen.